One of the essential American cartoons is Wiley e. Coyote uh, versus the Roadrunner, uh, which is about the coyote's continual but always failing quest to catch and eat the Roadrunner. You know, this really fast little bird that supposedly tastes wonderful if you're a coyote. They live in the desert with lots of plateaus and, and high rock faces, and one of the coyote's repeated mistakes is, is that he chases the roadrunner off a cliff and then plummets to a very painful landing. Now, in, in these instances, right, the, the roadrunner is able to travel so fast that he can run straight across uh, the ravine through the air to the other side and safely. Coyote gets so focused on chasing him that he too runs over the cliff but does not immediately realize that he has no more ground to stand upon. And after a few moments hanging in midair, he realizes his mistake and the consequences of his actions then take effect. In Jude 11 to 13, Jude highlighted how the false teachers who had crept into the church are standing in midair. They had not realized that they have run over a cliff. And although their plummet had not yet begun, it was only a matter of time before the consequences of their actions would take effect. So the epistle of Jude, if we, we need to remind ourselves, perhaps particularly in this letter, what's going on. The epistle of Jude was written to a church that had been infiltrated by false teachers who had corrupted grace and denied Christ's lordship. They, they were perverting grace to support their godless lifestyles. They wanted sensuality. And we will see today self-indulgence. So one of the difficulties for us to reckon with is that there were genuine unbelievers who were recognized and were working within the true church, even as teachers. And we have to reckon with the hard fact that unbelievers can become participants in the administration of the covenant of grace without truly partaking of its substance, salvation in Christ by faith. And so in that context, Jude's central admonition for this church is to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Believers are, verse 1, those loved by the Father and kept for Christ. And the effect of what God has done is, verse 21, that we keep ourselves in the love of God. Far from undermining our confidence and assurance, that summons is in God's sovereign mercy in Christ, that he will keep us for Christ. This God who will keep us for Christ does so by preserving us in the truth. And so we are to contend for the faith that is delivered to us. In Jude 11 to 13, Jude notes that woe, a curse, right? The covenantal consequences of transgression notes that a woe, woe is coming upon the false teachers 
because they are like so many other godless leaders who have preceded them. They are, in a sense, as they wait for this woe to be inflicted, they are like the coyote about to plummet because he left solid ground. And so the main point this morning is that we must beware of those teachers who will not offer the true Christ. We must beware of those teachers who will not offer the true Christ. And we're going to consider this in three points. Examples observed, empty offerings, and exact satisfaction. So first, the examples observed, and we're thinking about verse 11 here, and the three uh, Old Testament instances that Jude notes for us. And so this point, though, is, is going to situate, the first thing we're going to do is situate Jude's claim about uh, this woeful consequence coming for the false teachers within the scope of, of this letter's developing argument. And there's a lot of moving pieces in this letter, right? And I think it's easy for us to lose track of what's going on. And so this is a, a moment for us to consider what has happened and, and bring things back together. So Jude began this letter in verses 1 to 4 by greeting the saints and exhorting them to contend for the faith. Right? Because, because there were ungodly people, unbelievers, who were teaching against a proper view of grace. Then in verses 5 to 7, he reminded his readers that the unbelievers in Israel, the fallen angels, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, which shows what is in store for those who oppose God, whether or not they once fellowshiped among God's people or just outright opposed Him. So this destruction gives us an idea of what this woe to come upon them means. And in verses 8 to 10, Jude compares these ungodly people who claimed that God endorsed their godlessness in their dreams to those various examples of of, uh, how people opposed God. And in contrast to that invented appeal to their dreams, God's true servants, like Michael the archangel, rely upon what God says rather than taking authority upon themselves. And so verse 10 in the lead-up to our section for today. Verse 10 ends Jude's description of the false teachers and their character. But these people blasphemed all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Rather than relying on what God has said, they rely on their unreasoning Instincts as sinful people, and destruction is coming. Following that description, Jude announces the deliverance upon them. Woe is in fact coming for them. And so whereas Jude had been explaining the ways that the, that the coyote ran off the cliff, now he pointed out that this meant he, they would certainly fall into the chasm. The false teachers were like that, who went too quickly after what they wanted without realizing the consequence. And now verse 11 tells us the consequence. They are cursed. 
The deliverance of woe is a curse. It is the announcement of this coming destruction handed down by God. And even though Jude has been very clear about the situation already, he proceeded to state the reasons for this impending woe again. Verse 11. Woe to them for, because they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So you see the three examples, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now, okay, just just a note for you, there's a, there's a list of texts on your order of service. I'm not going to read them all out loud, but they're there for you because there's a, a stack of kind of allusions and references throughout these verses. Uh, and I'll tell you where they are and what's going on, but they're there for you to kind of refer to and, and read as a help. So after stating that this woe, this curse, is the consequence upon their actions, Jude marked three reasons that the curse is impending. They replicated the behavior of three notorious sinners. Right? And I think this is important because Jude has, has uh, drawn on a lot of interesting sources, as we've seen. Uh, and in the verses ahead we get a blast of Old Testament references. And now it's it's very compressed and they're not all uh, as obvious as others, but we see here, even as as Jude is kind of dealing with uh, interpretations and and other sources outside the Scripture, there's a, a dense reflection upon the Old Testament itself here too. Now first, they... These false teachers imitated Cain. In Genesis 4, Cain killed his brother, Abel, since God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not his. And the main issue there was that Cain hated his brother and killed him. And what's going on in this church? The false teachers hate their brothers and sisters. And indeed, by teaching them falsehoods, are trying to lead them into death. They are hating their brothers and sisters, just like Cain, and wish for their ending, which is shown in what they teach them. The false teachers are also like Balaam. Now, the more familiar aspects of of Balaam's story are recorded in Numbers 22 to 24 where King Balak tried to enlist Balaam to curse Israel. Uh, so there's a, there's a long scope of, uh, of what Balaam is doing, and yet none of it records kind of a, an aspect of, of greed overtly, like seems to be the case here in Jude. But there are resonances throughout a few passages. So Numbers 24, 10 to 11 notes that Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel and offered him great honor. And this did indeed seem to be a motivating factor. Balaam was willing to curse God's people for the sake of personal gain. And we see that in the false teachers. 
right? And we can circle back to that in just a second. But the, the instance of Balaam's error for the sake of personal gain is even clearer as Numbers 31.16, they're on your sheet, explained, this is the important part, explained that Balaam was the one who gave advice to Moabite women to use sexual temptation to lure Israelites to sacrifice to pagan gods. And we see the connection with Cain there, right? Cain hated his brother, so let, so killed him. Balaam's very willing to bring curse upon God's people for the sake of his own gain. And the sort of repeated temptation throughout history in all times and places advises using sexual temptation. The false teachers are using sensuality. You can do what you want as long as you pay us. Balaam was focused on personal gain to the detriment of God's people. So too the false teachers whom Jude addressed promoted sexual immorality to the detriment of God's people and taught to promote their own cause for the sake of gain. Now the last example. In number 16, Korah led a rebellion against Moses and made himself the, the preeminent example throughout the, the rest of, uh, as, as Jewish writers reflected upon the Old Testament, Korah became the preeminent example of rebellion and rejection of the law, antinomianism. Right? And so Jude then wrote in the past tense that these present false teachers perished like Korah and his followers died as, as the ground opened <coughs> and swallowed them. Because these false teachers had so thoroughly walked like Cain, committed themselves to Balaam's error for their own gain, and so the condemnation that the ground will open and they will plummet to their death was already ensured. And as he said in verse 4, they were long ago designated for this condemnation. These These three examples... The examples observed highlight the reasons that curse, that woe is coming upon the false teachers. They were imitating the most significant significant examples of sin from the Old Testament period. And that brings us to our second point, empty offerings. So, we've seen that verse 11 informs the false teachers, that that they are hanging in the air over the ravine and the consequences are about to set in. And the reason that this woe, this curse from God is coming upon is that they followed notoriously sinful examples. They've acted against others mainly by leading God's people into sin. Having stated the consequences, then... In verses 12 and 13, Jude explains the effects that these actions are having on the church community. And the, there's, there's six illustrations here. And the, the main issue demonstrated throughout these six illustrations is that the false teachers introduce hidden dangers, right, that, that mislead 
And then the crucial part is, rather than providing needed resources, so the teachers of the church are supposed to provide, and rather than providing, the false teachers store up. And these illustrations shift emphasis somewhat in in that, whereas verses 5 to 10 portrayed the teachers as as sinners, sort of um, in a disconnected way, just sinners as such, this section here highlights how they are trying to lead others into sin, which is the opposite of what they are called to do. And if we look at the metaphors, though, we can, we can see how these false, false teachers are hidden dangers, that they mislead others, and they fail to provide needed resources. So, the, for someone like me, at least, the brilliant thing here is the text provides my illustrations. And that's a, that's a thankful relief, uh, in this instance. Uh, the false teachers are first like, hidden reefs, like ships are destroyed as they run aground on rocks concealed under the water's surface, so the false teachers are unexpected dangers within the church. The water on top appears fine, and so do the false teachers. But just like hidden rocks can destroy a ship, the false teacher's doctrine is actually about to blast holes in the Christian walk of these believers. Most pointedly here, they are so ingrained in the church community that they are participating in the Lord's Supper. That's what these love feasts are. I mean, that's not the way that we refer to it, but this seems to be uh, the way that the earliest church uh, referred to the Lord's Supper fairly continually, and everyone that I read at least says this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. There's not disagreement. And this shows us a couple of things, but, but how thoroughly the teachers had infiltrated the church and why they were hidden dangers. They were participating in the most intimate thing that Christians do together receiving the sacrament of Christ's presence. And this is why Jude urged the whole church, the whole church, to contend for the faith. The leaders are teaching you false doctrine. And although your pastors should lead the way in good doctrine, we have to filter as the church. We have to filter everything we hear through the biblical filters of what we already know. Here's an application, right? Read the confessions. If we are hearing teaching that does not align with our confessions, the things that the church has said, we believe, as Christians, we believe the Bible teaches this. These false teachers are teaching from the Bible, right? And perverting it. And using it for their own gain. And so, all of us pay attention to our confessions so that if we hear teaching that does not align with them, we know that we're starting to sail near reefs 
that can destroy us. Rather than reverence for God, fear of the Lord, as it's put here, at the Lord's table, these, these shepherds instead are interested in feeding themselves. So Jude here is citing uh, Ezekiel 34 verse 2 about self-feeding shepherds. And, and in that chapter, God indicts these shepherds because their job is to feed the sheep. But they are diverting all the resources to their own care. And so we see the first clear example of how these false teachers are not providing what they should have. They are not providing food for the sheep. They have no offerings to give to those in their care, instead are taking for themselves. There's a lack of provision. And Jude rammed the point home about non-provision over the next two metaphors. Drawing on, on Proverbs 25.14, he noted that the false teachers are waterless clouds directed by other forces. In it, We have to keep in mind, this is essential desert context that he's writing to, right? And in that context, water is precious. It's a slightly different uh, situation than the one we find here. <laughs> we don't look at the clouds and, need, and feel that we need them. If there's a cloud there for them, that's a sign of hope. We need that. That's water that has to come to us for us to survive. And the clouds are promising that needed refreshment. And so too, Christians long for restorative teaching. The promises of God that help us walk fruitfully with our God. And yet, these false teachers denied that to them. Right? It's, it's like unwrapping a Christmas present to find the box empty. There's no provision. And in the same way, the teachers should have had nourishing fruit, like trees, but were barren. Since they were installed as church leaders, as teachers, the season had come for them to bear fruit, to feed the flock. And yet, being an autumn, even dressed in full leaf, these false teachers' branches lack anything to nourish God's people. And so again, the consequences will come upon them. The first and second death, they're twice dead, will befall them as they are judged and uprooted. The twice dead cannot offer, but only take. They're disconnected from life. They are uprooted and give no provision. And so too we see the church, in the church, that a lack of truth, right, leaves nothing to offer. We cannot be a people who are committed to anything besides the truth. 
And that is our exhortation to contend for the faith. Instead of the nourishment of refreshing water or restoring fruit, these teachers instead spew foam good for nothing. Drawing on Isaiah 57.20, Jude notes how they are like waves that stir up the sea, churning silt and dirt throughout the water. They are polluting the church. And all they provide is foam. And so they teach God's people only to agitate the woe, the curse that is coming upon them to their own shame, tossing up their own shame as they deliver false descriptions of God and His grace. Like planets that veer from the courses that God carved into the universe for them throughout the skies, these teachers veer about like wandering stars. It is a full desertion of everything they are meant to be. These heretics give empty offerings by claiming to teach God's people, but they lack the exact substance that they promise. They provide no nourishment and strive instead after their own desires. Finally, though, we come to exact satisfaction. Because we have seen a church with leaders that cannot provide is one that is that contains hidden dangers. And so if these heretics show themselves as sinful teachers trying to lead God's people astray by taking a prominent role but being truly empty, the question is, what should they have offered? What, what were they supposed to provide for God's people? And the answer here should not surprise. I think there are times, though, that we need to come back to these basic answers. We can hope for advice for our life often. And yet there are these moments that we need to consider, what is the genuinely fundamental thing that I need? And although it sounds very obvious, the exact thing that these teachers were lacking, but the exact thing that God's people need then and now is Christ. Verse 4, they had perverted the grace of God into sensuality and denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They were caught on what they wanted and neglected Christ. They had focused on their own desires. The fleshly longings, verse 10, that they understand instinctively with their own sinful minds, focused on themselves, they had forgotten Christ. And I do think that, although it's never our intent, it's so easy for us to forget this exact thing, to focus on Christ. We need these moments to recenter ourselves. And this text has a very simple, although well-known point, that we see that quite simply our greatest need is the Lord Jesus. 
we have no more pointed or fundamental need than for the gospel of Christ's grace. We are those who easily lean into what we understand instinctively and into our own temptations. And what we need is a clear and unperverted message of grace. The affirmation of what Jesus has done for you. And so there are a few ways that I think we can ask ourselves, remind ourselves of the joy of this message. And they come from the illustrations right here in this text. Is your soul hungry? Do, Do you need a shepherd to provide you with true nourishment? We find that shepherd who provides genuinely, truly for his sheep, the good shepherd in Christ. The shepherd who indeed did not feed himself, but even gives himself to be our food as we eat and drink him by faith. Is your soul thirsty? Do you feel dry and unsustained, needing the clouds to bring you water for your soul? Are you in need of that refreshment? The water we need to rain upon us is Christ Jesus. Corrupt teaching is like the cloud that offers drink but blows the other direction. But when we believe in Christ, He is so refreshing that as the Gospel of John tells us, our hearts will flow rivers of living water. So abundant is Christ's blessing of provision that we ourselves become abundant. Is your soul bitter? Is is your heart tacky and dry in need of spiritual fruit and its refreshing nectar? Is your spirit crying out for the refreshing sweetness provided in fruit. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As Christ alone, there is no other place where we can go to fill a dry and bitter heart with sweetness than the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we find our heart's satisfaction as we long for restoration with our God. Indeed, that is how we know the gospel stills the waters of our hearts and puts away our shame. As we are reminded that Christ went to the cross to bear the penalty for our sin. He lived the perfect life to earn our place in heaven. So rather than casting foam of condemnation upon us, 
Instead of having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. When the law goes forth, even Christians find ourselves unsettled and prompted to flee to our Savior. But having done so, we find ourselves always welcomed into the rest that Jesus Christ himself provides. As he clears the record of our transgressions, as he offers us a home. And so, having been made right with God by faith alone, we are not left. We are not left drifting like wandering stars. We indeed are filled, indwelled by the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. Whereas these teachers store up all that they can, they take and take and reap from flocks that they were meant to feed. Christ gave himself, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our salvation. And every deepest longing that we might have, we find our provision in him. The world is fading. Even when we have needs in it, they can feel pointed. We can feel uncertain about where we will go, what we might do with each step of our lives as we seek after Christ. And yet, we know that in Him we do find the fullness of grace, whereas false teaching that perverts grace and downplays Christ leaves us starving, Christ is our exact satisfaction. Let's pray. Father God, there are these moments when we come to texts that, that tell us things we know. And yet Jude has written to remind the people of God of things that they once fully knew, and to prompt us to contend for the faith. Not that is new, not that we have recently understood, but the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We see the danger here of shepherds who will not provide. And so we are thankful for the shepherd who does. And we ask that in these moments, we would not be clamoring for, but what do I do? That is our impulse. What is the concrete application? Where do I go from here? Fine. We want to know how to seek after you. But in these moments, God, would you still our hearts, knowing that the thing we need most is the provision of the Lord Jesus. That our deepest need, felt or not, is that we would be reconciled to our God. And we ask that for those who trust in Christ, who have received this gospel, she would fill our hearts with joy right now. That this is a blessing we too easily become accustomed to. 
And yet it is grace that is amazing and should continually amaze us. Help us to see the beauty of Christ Jesus. Help us to know that in him we indeed find our satisfaction. And he is the shepherd who gives his life to have his sheep and to feed us even with himself. We pray these things in his name. Amen.